0: The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Very happy to have you back. Another episode of Trip Talk is here. It's holiday time. We have a great guest today to talk about some great books that he has written, they I don't know if they make stocking stuffers or whether they belong under the tree, but I do think they belong in your library. We'll talk about that momentarily right after this. The holiday gift-giving season, it's not just right around the corner anymore. It is here and in full swing. It's high time to fuel the open road dreams of special people in your life with a subscription to American Road Magazine. With exciting features, quality writing, and beautiful photography in every issue. American Road makes... It's a perfect gift for road tripping moms and dads, gallivanting grandparents, adventurous aunts and uncles. Maybe that special friend will enjoy it too. Visit AmericanRoadMagazine.com. That's AmericanRoadMagazine.com. Click subscribe. And for a limited time, you can enter the code KKNW to receive 25% off your subscription. Welcome back, Trip Talk we always enjoy doing this every friday here on 1150 kknw in seattle and then it becomes a podcast and it's thrown to the four winds catch it if you will always enjoyable today we have someone an accomplished writer a prolific author well-known columnist including for the wall street journal i'm talking about aj bame mr bame is the new york times best-selling author of the accidental president harry s truman and the four months that changed the world His previous books include The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an epic quest to arm an America at war. Also, Go Like Hell, Ford, Ferrari, and their battle for speed and glory at Le Mans, both of which were optioned for major motion pictures. Now he has the book out that you've got to get to. If you're an American road fan, you love cars, you love the open road, how about 100 Dream Cars, The Best of My Ride? New York Times bestselling author and popular Wall Street Journal My Ride columnist A.J. Baim selects the 100 cars, motorcycles, and other vehicles to fill the dream garage, and a lot of us have those dreams too. Right now, we're going to say hello to A.J. Bame, Mr. Baim, I'm so thrilled you could join us today.
1: It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: This is holiday season, and I have to tell you, AJ, I have looked at commercials for decades, and yet in my real life, I actually cannot remember a time when I, uh, during holiday season, Christmas morning, to drive around the neighborhood, snow or no snow. I don't recall ever seeing a Lexus, a Mercedes, a BMW, or even a Subaru that has a big bow wrapped around it in the driveway. Have you?
1: You know, I haven't, and I'll tell you, certainly not in my own driveway
0: never happened. <laughs> it's waiting. the whole idea. You know, and the thing is, AJ, it's it's the dream of having the car because when you imagine something bigger than life and it's waiting for you and you're just bursting with joy to see it, people often think of the automobile and it seems like you have a special affinity for car culture.
1: Well, absolutely. You know, I I grew up like so many people who love cars with Matchbox cars and Hot Wheels. And um, when I was a kid, we had like a, a floor that was made of a brick, you know, and it had caulking in between. And to me, that was like a map. And I would play with my cars and drive them around roads that were really, you know, just on a brick floor. And, um, you know, years later, my mother threw out all those Matchbox cars. And I always wonder what they'd be worth now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's how it started. It starts like for most, you know, like it has for most people. And these days, people my age, I'm 48, we have to be really cognizant of the fact that we need to somehow implant that passion in the next generation of people, too.
0: I think that we will, and it's interesting that you should say that, AJ, because only recently I was giving some thought to the idea that when you look back on people who loved their first car, their second car, or they saved it for their dream car, they maybe most of the time, were high-powered vehicles with the V8 engine, and they were burning up lots of gasoline and having a great time doing it. But now as we look forward, I mean, we're in a generation where people have a dream car that might be a Prius, or maybe they want to go all electric. The world of automotive technology is changing and taking a lot of us along with it into a whole new horizon.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, you can you can make the argument that there's never been a more exciting time to be a car fan because, for the first time since you know the Model P, since you know Ford Motor Company was created in 1903, you know engineers and artists are really literally redesigning the the wheels, the cars. The whole idea of transportation is being reborn, so it's exciting and fun, and we got to embrace it.
0: And a lot of people do, especially readers of American Road Magazine and your books. AJ, I, was like, I would like to segue into a good exploration. We've got time for it here this half hour. 100 Dream Cars, The Best of My Ride. Your work, your column, your passion for the automotive world, and 100 Dream Cars to Fill the Dream Garage. I love the concept of the book. Tell us what we can expect between its covers.
1: Well, well, thank you for bringing it up. Uh, years ago, I think it was, what was it, 2014 or 2013, um, I was writing about motorsport for um, the Wall Street Journal, just for the sports pages while I was working on um, my book, The Arsenal of Democracy, and I'd already written this book called Go Like Hell, which was um, option for film about the Ford-Ferrari War. And, and so I had, been, I had this relationship with the Wall Street Journal, and one day this editor called me, who I worked with, and he's like, we want to launch a new column. It's just about people who have interesting cars. Think about it. And I hung up the phone and I thought, well, wow, it's kind of a boring idea. And then I thought about it that night and I'm like, oh, my God, that's an incredible idea. Think of all the different things and passions and ideas and cars and um, people and geographies that this column could be about. But that's what we put together. So every week in the Wall Street Journal, the story comes out online on Tuesday and it's in the newspaper on Wednesday. We do original photography. We find these amazing, really surprising stories about people who own a vehicle of some kind that they have a great passion and a great story about, and the vehicle itself is interesting and usually visually stimulating as well. So after a bunch of years doing this every week, we put this thing together in um, a photography book because all the photography is original. We created with these great photographers all over the country all our own photography, And I did all the interviews. So we packaged 100 of those stories in a book published by Rizzoli, which is, you know, I always bill it as the most prestigious coffee table book company in the world. So here we have. It came out in September and we're going like gangbusters.
0: I know it's going to be hugely successful, whether it sits on a coffee table or if it's dog-eared with people leafing through all the, the columns and the pictures. It would be very exciting for any car enthusiast, I'm sure. So we're talking about 100 dream cars, and I know that you would come up with some especially noteworthy examples of things you just don't see on the street every day. What are your favorites among those that you chose to include in the book? You know,
1: that's a good question, and there's uh, there's one thing I can say about that, and then I'll answer the question. I remember being in the Ducati Museum years ago in, in Bologna in Italy, and the curator of the museum I was interviewing him for a story I was writing for the Wall Street Journal. And I said, well, you know, what is your favorite in this collection of racing bikes? And he looked at me and he said, how many children do you have? And I said, two. And he said, which one is your favorite? <laughs> so it's hard to say which one is my favorite. I don't have them because I love them all. But here's the thing about this book. Um, all the other books I've written, you begin at the beginning and there's a beginning and a middle and an end. So the, the books that I like to write are really, they're narrative. So they're, they have big climactic moments and great characters. But this book is different. You can open it up to any page and find beautiful photography and an interesting story. So I'll just flip, you know, I'll flip here to any... Okay, so here's a story called The Spirit of Rhett. It's a story about Charlie Neerberg, this incredible individual whose son passed away of a rare disease, and he decided he was going to try his best to make this a positive story. So he created a land speed record vehicle, named it for a son, and broke all these speed records at 422.8 miles per hour in a naturally aspirated vehicle that runs on gasoline. You know, I can open it up to another one. And here's the story, bingo, here's the story about, okay, this 1963 Lola GT that Alan Grant, is a racing driver of the 1960s, he bought this car out of a warehouse in 1963. It's only one of its kind in the world. And it's so special become so valuable that he's owned it since, I think, 1965, and he's never driven it, ever. Think about that. But it's beautifully restored. So that's the kind of thing. You know, I have this wonderful story about this woman whose husband passed away, and she uh, took on—she had never driven a, uh, a Model T, but she became this Model T aficionado because she was always in the, in the passenger seat. And now he was gone, so she became the driver, and she became this expert. And then there's a story about a guy who bought an R8 in the middle of the night on eBay. And uh, the next thing you knew, the car was being delivered to his house, and he regretted it, but he fell in love with the car. That kind of thing. So each story is very it's surprising, you know? It's got to be something that you wouldn't expect.
0: I've got one of my own I'd like to mention. That's the story of a pizza delivery man who dodges polar bears in his Hyundai in Barrow, Alaska. <laughs> Now, I live in Sarasota, Florida, so this isn't a very likely scenario in my life. That makes me all the more eager to read about his story. What is that about?
1: Well, I'm glad you brought that one up because, you know, firstly, let me say this. As an aside, Sarasota is wonderful, man. I spent some beautiful time there. I have an uncle who lives in Sarasota. He used to be the Commodore of the Sarasota Yacht Club. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. So congratulations to you. But that story, we were sitting around thinking like, We have to always come up with, It's like I was just saying, each column has to be surprising. You open the paper, and it has to be really something unexpected. So we came up with this idea, like, who who delivers pizza in the northernmost place in the country? What is his car like? Because he has to drive around. So first we figured out what is the northernmost town in North America, or in the United States of America. It turned out to be Barrow, Alaska. So I went online and I found a pizza shop in Barrow, Alaska, and I called over there and I got the guy on the line who delivers pizzas. And so we sent a photo- we had to fly a photographer across the frozen tundra to get there. And, um, and the, the, again, the photography is amazing. And this guy, he just drives a Hyundai. But it's so interesting to look at the pictures because of the scenery in which we took where, where we took
0: those photos. Oh, that would be just amazing. Also, congratulations on having a bigger budget than me. <laughs> Flying a photographer you know, that's across the, the tundra—that's <laughs> amazing. It's the only
1: time, only time in seven years of writing this column, we did that, because we got scolded by the bosses for spending the money.
0: <laughs> so we were never. I can to understand do that. That, that. They'll pinch a penny. There are so many yeah. cars, AJ. That there are so many cars that are iconic and attached to a particular year in memory. People talk about the 57 Chevy, of course, the 62 Corvette. How about if if you're in the high-priced market, the 87 Lamborghini. People will remember a time by the car that they drove, no matter how humble the car may be. I still remember my first Oldsmobile when uh, my dad got that for me right after I got my license. And it was with me for, you know, it was too big for my requirements and my friends used to call it the gunboat, but I have this soft place in my heart for my first car like anybody else. When we talk about these cars attached to years, the thing that makes me curious, AJ, is what is it about that year that the designers envisioned a car that would be capable of being attached in memory in people's hearts frankly about the 57 chevy the 62 corvette not just any corvette but that corvette for example
1: well that's a wonderful question and i think that question really gets to the heart of what makes some cars very special because you can build a car and market it and it can be beautiful and it can be stunning and everybody can love it but how does one car become an icon? It's usually the answer to the question is a vehicle can become swept up in in, in the convergence of historical forces, right? So for example, uh, okay, the Beatles. Think about the Beatles. If the Beatles were playing, you know, came out with the White Album today, what would happen? Would people like the record? Would it? Would they become the most famous musicians ever? Probably not. But that record hit at a specific time and a specific place that it rode this wave of converging historical forces. So here's another example. If you turn to my ride, this book, page 83, there's a 1967 Chevrolet Camaro that we shot with its owner underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Very beautiful. But the, what is it it's special about the 67 Camaro? Well, you have this whole Ford Mustang thing that happened beginning in April 1964, I believe, and Chevy had to come out with something that could compete, and so 67 was the first year, if I'm not mistaken, of the Camaro, and it sparked this war between the Camaro and the Mustang, the Chevy and the Ford that people are still talking about today, and you still see this this rivalry played out on our roads anytime you get in a car and go driving around on a highway. So that's, that, that's kind of what I mean. So yeah, there you have it, the first year of the Camaro. Then you've got like a 1963 split-window Corvette. Who knew that this weird split-window you know, thing in the back of the car that they only made for that one year would somehow turn this vehicle into an icon? Who knew, you know?
0: Yes, and I've seen pictures of that particular Corvette. I've only seen one on the road, and I admit I did a double-take.
1: Yeah, yeah, because there's so few of them.
0: That amazes me. And people will spend more money, I guess. I mean, I haven't priced anything like that, but I imagine people are willing today for the sake of nostalgia, for the glory years, they will spend more money than it would have cost them originally to have because now it's something precious and rare.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's another example. I just flipped this book 100 dream cars to another page, randomly, and turned to page 175. And there's this story of this guy. He's a, he owns a jewelry store in a small town in Missouri. And some people may know that the whole monster truck movement began it in Missouri with this guy named Bob. What was his name? He created Bigfoot, the first the first monster truck in the 70s. And I interviewed him, by the way, this but this is a different story. This kid, this kid, he grows up in Missouri, where monster trucks, the whole phenomenon comes from. And he's a kid at the time. And he's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And, you know, years and years later, he lives in a small town and he's a jewelry store owner. He's finally at the point in his life in his 50s where he's got a few bucks. And he happens to see online that one of the monster trucks that he remembered from a kid called, it was called High Roller 2, um, was up for sale on eBay for eight grand, and so he bought it and had it restored. And so now this jewelry store owner owns one of the original nineteen seventies monster trucks, and he drives it in his town parade, and he loves it. And the whole town thinks it's the greatest thing ever.
0: I love to hear those stories, people and their cars, and also the places they drive. You know, I I have to admit I'm a little on the cautious. I have a lot of native caution, AJ, and if I had something that was that superb, I would be very careful about where I drove in, especially if I had to leave it alone for any length of time. It would probably have to be in the possession of somebody that I knew I could trust implicitly to take care of my baby, you know?
1: Absolutely. Last week's column, um, not this week, but last week, we had a gentleman in there who owns a Koenigsegg Agera RS, which is the fastest model production customer car ever produced 277 miles an hour or something like that and i asked him i'm like what is it you know that's a four million dollar car what's it like to drive that down the street don't you get nervous and he said yes i feel very comfortable driving the car but when i'm driving it everybody wants to photograph me so people all around me are driving their cars and aiming their cell phones and taking pictures of me in, in like while we're driving so yeah i can see how you know be careful what you wish for it's kind of what you get at.
0: Absolutely. I would love driving that car. I'm not so sure I would be comfortable parking it. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. And the book, again, is 100 Dream Cars, The Best of My Ride, a column by A.J. Baim in the Wall Street Journal. The Car aficionados love this column. I'm sure they wait for it every time and the book itself is a collection of stories profiling 100 beautiful vehicles and their owners. It's the ultimate gift book for car lovers, and what better time to pick it up than for someone you love, the car nut in your family, or for yourself at Christmas time. AJ, I'd like to, uh, and I do also have my compliments to you because you, you think this book is taken seriously in car circles? Mario Andretti wrote the foreword. Enough said about that. That's fantastic. <laughs> So, A.J., and I mean, that's an honor. That's terrific. I wanted to uh, get a little time in here before we have to close about a couple of your other books. It's wonderful that you're an author with such wide interest, and you pursue it with passion and depth. Harry S. Truman, the book is called The Accidental President, Harry S. Truman and the Four Months that Changed the World. Another previous book, The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit— and an epic quest to arm an America at war. In particular, that caught my eye, A.J., because I remember seeing on a documentary that Secretary of War Stimson said to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Mr. President, if you want to engage industry in this war, if you want them to get into the war, you're going to have to show them how to make a profit. And given the fact that we were, it was an existential battle for our democracy and our nation, nevertheless, there, when you're talking about titans of industry, you're talking about the profit motive and how to get this to, to not only make us victorious in the war, but how to make a buck in the bargain. And I wonder if you get into some of that economic argumentation in your book. You know, um, to some
1: extent, yes. Yeah. And, and, and what you're referring to is... It, the government, essentially, the book is called The Arsenal of Democracy, and it's named after a speech that FDR made in which he spelled out his his philosophy of how we were going to win the war. That, and The idea was basically that we were going to join government, military, and business into one arsenal of democracy that can defeat the enemy and save not just ourselves, but our allies, and um, to get business to function uh um, they, they came up with this idea called cost plus. So the contracts were cost plus. If they went to Ford Motor Company and said, "Make the B-24 Liberator the most mass-produced military aircraft of all time," which is what happened, uh, American military aircraft, I should say, uh, there, there has to, you know, we have to compensate you. We can't just expect you to do it for, for no reason. Otherwise, your business will go under. Um, and so they came up with this cost-plus thing. So if it costs a hundred million dollars, the government said, okay, we'll give you a hundred million dollars plus eight percent. And that's how the contracts were all set up. And that's that way there was, you know, no cutting corners uh, to get these bombers correctly, because soon enough you're going to have people flying them into enemy territory. But really, what the book is about is it's not as much about the economics. It's about the human story and it, it and stories. And it zeroes in on FDR and his strategy of winning the war and ultimately the saga of the ford family three generations of the ford family and what they did they built the biggest aircraft factory in the world to make the B24 bomber which was at the time our biggest fastest most destructive bomber um, into the most mass produced military aircraft of all time and all the stuff that went right all the stuff that went wrong and focusing really on the human stories these people these main characters and their saga
0: that would be a great read. So too with another of your books. You really have some dynamic work going for you here, AJ. Go like hell, Ford, Ferrari, and their battle for speed and glory at Le Mans. This is attracting movie audiences. Here you're talking about clashing titans.
1: Yeah, well, that's the that's the first sort of big book that I wrote and uh, came out in 2009, and um, it was it was. Uh, it was such a labor of love at the time, and it's been out for a while. But it's been, we're doing very well selling books right now. It's been a lot of fun, and um, that that book is you know, it's really about these larger than life characters, because if you why is it relevant now? If you think about why the Ford Ferrari rivalry of the 1960s is relevant now, it's because the cast of characters is still today the, like greatest cast of automotive icons you can think of. Carol Shelby and again Mario Andretti as a rookie. And Enzo Ferrari, who created the Ferrari company, and Henry Ford II, who was the grandson of the founder, and then the racing drivers and and the uh, engineers and and um, the you know the whole fascination that the public came to have at the birth of you know big time TV. So it's uh, you know it's one of these amazing stories you could make up if you wanted to.
0: And it seems that because it's a larger-than-life story, people are attracted to conflict gets resolved one way or another between people who have larger-than-life personalities. I mean, it's it's opinions that make horse races, after all, but also auto races. So I'm sensing this keen competition that inevitably played itself out on the track, and the ultimate track, or one of them anyway.
1: Absolutely. You know, um, motor racing is fascinating to write about because it's not just sports. It's not just a sport. At the time, it was the greatest marketing tool that big industry knew on how to sell cars. So, um, you know, the sport executive, Jack Passanel, he once said, you go to a football game, you get 100,000 people there. None of them wants to buy a sleeping football. But you go to an automobile race, and there everybody is. Everybody is your potential customer. And so you have these amazingly larger-than-life figures, Henry Ford II, the most powerful executive of there, who really used racing to market cars to sell cars and try to make Ford Motor Company the biggest car company in the world. But also, he was relaunching his company in Europe during the dawn of globalism. So it was really this massive marketing arm to conquer the world's racetrack. And then Enzo Ferrari was the exact opposite. He didn't really care about selling customer cars. He just built these cars and sold them to very wealthy people so he had money because he was just about the racing. So it, it, it it comes this fabulous rivalry that Becomes ultimately a rivalry between the USA and Europe. And again, it's the greatest, most popular motor race in the world, but also an extraordinarily violent sporting event. Again, mm. during the dawn of big time TV. So it's pretty, pretty, uh, it's an epic story.
0: I can't wait to get into these books. AJ, I am just thrilled with what you have. Uh, to offer. I appreciate you as a writer. I appreciate your energy, your passion. Can't wait to get to them. And in our last minute, if people want to get in touch with you online, if they want to read more about you, A.J. Bame, where do they go?
1: Well, you can always go to facebook.com slash A.J. BAME. That's probably the best place. And all of my books are obviously available on uh, Amazon, and that's always the easiest thing to do. And There's audible audio versions of all of them, and thank you for having me, and thank you, everybody, for uh, picking up books, whether they're mine or somebody else's, and reading them.
0: Beautiful. And A.J. Bame. Bame is B-A-I-M-E. A.J., I hope we'll have the chance to speak again. Thanks so much.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning into American Road Trip Talk, everybody, along with Thomas and Becky representative co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue of American Road Magazine. Until next week, drive safely and dream well.